Hello everybody, James here, and if you don't know who I am, I am the host of WSI Wrestling Shoots Interviews on YouTube and also Storytime with Dutch Mantel, and uh, you will be getting to know me a little bit more if you don't follow the other two, but for now really this is the star of the show, the franchise Shane Douglas, and he's going to be joining me, and we're going to be going through uh, Barely Legal, but in this first episode of the currently untitled Shane Douglas podcast that we've still not figured out a title for. <laughs> Uh, we are going to be talking about the run-up to Barely Legal. But for now, Shane, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Yeah, good morning to you. Or what? Good afternoon to you guys, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, across the pond. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit little bit earlier here for us. We're, uh, well, not early now, 8.30. But, uh, yeah, so you guys are, what, at 2.30? 1.30. 1.30. 130, yeah. Without without getting into the weird reason why, we're always five hours ahead apart from like two or three weeks in the year when for some reason our daylight savings time changes at a different date to yours so for about three weeks of the year you're four hours behind i don't anyway yes yeah. uh it's, it's one of those mysteries of the universe isn't it yeah 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 to somebody someplace in in some government body that that makes sense yeah. more regulation <laughs> that's what we need in this world yeah. uh for for now this is a brand new podcast as we say as we record this we don't know what we're going to call it yet we don't even have plugs to give at the moment but we are on podcasts we are on youtube and as I say, yes. we are going to be diving into Barely Legal in at least a two-part episode, if not three or four or five or whatever it is. <laughs> and for future podcasts that we're listening, uh, that you're listening to or watching, we are also going to be doing, let's say, uh, a review of somebody's career that we pick. We may even have a guest on one day that you can interview, and then I'll just stay in the background. We can do <laughs> anything you want, Shane, on this because it's your show. Um, no, it's our show. Our show, okay. Uh, but yeah, in, in fairness, in, in in that sense, I did pick this subject and uh, barely legal, ECW, uh, the very first pay per view, and I'm not going to talk about the actual pay per view itself first because there's so much preamble to the difficulties yeah. of ECW getting onto pay per view in the first place, and I'm very sorry I'm doing a lot of talking at the beginning. I know you tuned in to uh, listen to Shane but uh, there's but there's so much uh, that I want to get uh, before we uh, go so buy rate 0.26 or thereabouts it's tough to get buy rate still about 45,000 buys above a 2.0 would have been deemed a break even or a success uh, so it was technically a success by a 20% or so pay-per-view was $20 to buy maybe 1995 the show generated reported $400,000 in pay-per-view revenue Attendance was 1,170, no big surprise because it was in the uh, ECW arena. And a fun fact is that the ECW arena actually struggled to sell out uh, up until about a week beforehand, Shane, because the tickets were uh, inflated to $40 buy-in and $100 for ringside. Uh, It drew $66,000 in ticket sales. And my first question to you, Shane, is, uh, is it true that Paul Heyman uh, put basically the entire capital of the promotion betting on the success of barely legal like vince did with wrestlemania yeah well one of the the, the big secrets of ecw was exactly where we always stood financially so uh but my guess would be yes i i, I do recall as you were going over those those facts and figures at the beginning uh to get the, the first of all to get the satellite uplink uh you know we've changed so much because of all this technology uh, you know, high def cameras and things. Back then, I was telling Moose last night, you had to light something up like the sun to be able to televise it and to have quality that the that the pay per view companies would want to carry it. And uh, the the arena was no different that night. Uh, but to get the the actual uh, TV truck, you know, that could 
take the, the signal and beam it and then do all the on on at real time editing that we were rarely doing in ECW. It was $250,000 cash up front just to get the truck there and the satellite uplink. Oh. And then, you know, the, the, the other advertisement and stuff that would have gone into it. Uh, plus then plane tickets to get the, everybody in the hotels or whatever. Uh, you know, there was an awful lot of money. There. So no doubt that whatever ECW had in the bank, if, if anything, it would have sucked that up plus. And uh, yeah, so I would say that, you know, we were on the line, much like Vince in the first one had that first WrestleMania failed. Uh, you know, he he had uh, a bunch of money from the guys, you know, that look like this, <laughs> apparently, from what I hear that had he not been able to pay that back, you know, who knows, Vince might not have been able to take his uh, medical leave right now. Uh, and the same thing for ECW. The, the, uh, the amazing fact about ECW is that we were literally always hand to mouth. There was never a time where we said, hey, we're on easy street. We got a shit ton of money in the bank and we can take it easy. Every three weeks that that ECW arena wasn't full, that could have been the end of ECW. And I think that held our feet to the fire to some, to some extent. Uh, were there any times that ECW, the arena, before 97 didn't sell out? Early. Uh, very early. Uh, within the first, I always say three, four months. It might have been like the first six months. I remember in the earliest, earliest shows, like when Eddie Gilbert was there, they had printed up these little coupons, free beer and hot dogs. And we would stand on the sidewalk in front of the arena, you know, people going by to Foreman Mills right next door where, where all those pots and things would come from. And we'd hand these out to get people. And that's when we still the ropes around the ring and no rail. Uh, but once ECW started hitting its stride and once the arena started selling out, it pretty much was that. Which, it, But if you pay attention, you notice, uh, like the fans always have, you know, uh, hat guy in the front row, you know, the different uh, – usual suspects were always in their same seats because they would be on the telephone from Gabe Sapolsky at the office, ordering their tickets for the next show in time. Once we started selling out the arena, we never looked back, but that didn't keep, preclude us from thinking like, Hey, if we have a shit show, this, this arena three weeks, you know, this show in three weeks, we might be down 10 or 15 or 30%. And I think that was part of the reason there was never in my head, there was never a time when somebody had to come and say, okay, guys, we need to pick the pace up or uh hey you need to work a little harder hey focus more uh that was never the problem in ecw the ecw problem was always money you know running a running a promotion as you can imagine is incredibly expensive uh next up i'm, uh, I'm sorry i'm gonna do a bit more reading here uh, the no. run up to barely legal was a long and winding road with a number of stops and starts some reasons because of ecw's content and some due to a total misunderstanding of uh, what ECW and pro wrestling was at the time. I should say, uh, EC, I didn't actually write this, I should have said that, uh, ECW's road to pay-per-view. Uh, UFC, mm-hmm. which had been gaining popularity since its first show in 1993, had drawn the ire of a number of influential detractors, most notably future presidential hopeful and then Senator John McCain, likening UFC to human cockfighting. McCain nearly succeeded in killing off UFC for good after successfully lobbying to stop pay-per-view providers from carrying the UFC shows. Now, this is where ECW comes in, is that the problem with ECW was that to people not in the know, Heyman's group was more akin to UFC than WWF or WCW at the time, and therefore should also be banned from pay-per-view. Now, uh, through a letter-writing campaign, ECW was ended up uh, being carried by a few providers like Request TV and Premier, but some like Viewers Choice and Cablevision refused to carry the show. Uh, Request TV had demanded... I will get to a question, Shane. I'm sorry. No, Request TV had demanded an advance. I'm taking this all in, too. I'm, I'm talking quite quickly as well, because it's, oh. I, if, I'm, if I'm going mush mouth, let me know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Request TV had demanded an advanced script 
of barely legal, uh, a start time of 9pm rather than 7pm, and that be blood, and this is very uh, where I'm going with, uh, blood was to be kept to a minimum. Was there too much blood in ECW for your tastes? It's, it's, it's like all things in ECW, it, like something like the first time Sabu broke a table uh, and it elicited the response that it did, obviously. All of a sudden, everybody and their brother was breaking a table in the match. Same thing with chairs. Mine, of course, was the F-bombs and suddenly everybody's F-bombing all over the microphone. So things would take on. And that really was where Paul, I think, was lax as, as a booker. Uh, if I would go up to somebody and say, hey, stop breaking tables. Fuck you, franchise. You know, you worry about your own match. Uh, Paul was the only one that really could do that. Uh, Todd, even when he was still involved with the company, was less hands-on than, say, Paul was. So uh, that was where I think Paul was a bit too lax as a, as a booker. And, you know, you can argue about, you know, it was always like being in a straitjacket before in the other promotions because they would tell you, you have this much time, you got to go home at this point. If, if God forbid, if the, you know, the, uh, 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 Gene Anderson comes down and flips his tie. That means go home right then. Uh, you know, the things like that, uh, you know, and it, and it really limited you as a, as a, from a creative point of view. Uh, so in ECW and suddenly you're just given, okay, you're, you're match three or main event, whatever you can go an hour, you can go 10 minutes, whatever you think it's right. So there was a lot of leeway there that made ECW, I think cutting edge, uh, and different, uh, but also in the, in the everyday minute to minute management of a company like that, somebody has to be the boss. And, and, and those were the types of things where ECW started showing like a bit of its Achilles heel. You know, when you were going, when you were reading, that's why I said, like, I'm, I don't, don't back off that because I, as you're reading it, I'm remembering the stuff as well. Uh, the human cock fight. I remember that specifically because uh, if you remember my earliest promos in ECW, I would say, you know, uh, Webster uh, professional wrestling, Webster says wrestling's a sport and we're a shoot. We're a goddamn shoot. Uh, well, Paul came to me and said, stop saying that back off that a little bit and he didn't tell me why exactly at that moment uh but i'm sure that's what it was because ecw and ufc started up almost at the same time overlapping and so as we moved forward we started hearing the, the heat they were taking you know the united states senator which by the way a little soapbox on the side not united states senator's purview uh worry about the laws you're passing mm -hmm. uh but uh, you know the, the TV companies and and the other things and, and and basically ultimately the fan base will decide if they if they like that or not like that. Uh, but you know as soon as a, a senator as influential as John McCain stepped into that, suddenly everybody was under the microscope, especially a fledgling promotion like ECW and UFC. The outset from that for the or the outcome from that was for them to they adopted the gloves, uh, couldn't do chokeholds, uh, uh, the referee could stop the matches. Uh, they incorporated enough rules that then this, the pay-per-view company said, okay, this is more in line with what we think it should be. Uh, ECW, you know, as you can imagine, Paul Heyman was a lot more reticent to accept and adapt into some of those things. Uh, and I think over, as time went on, we slowly did. Uh, but, you, you know, like again, the, in my promos and things that, that I would, the way I would word my promos, uh, but but it was a fight that we were having from the very beginning, along with UFC, them in a much more public way because ECW was still pretty small at the time. When, um, you know, some occasionally a wrestler I'll talk to is still a bit reticent to talk about this. I, I don't imagine you will be, but if you want to pass, I, I'm always happy to. When was the first time you uh, did the old, when you did the blade? Uh, a tag match with uh, the, the Bruise Brothers. Uh, it was me and Curtis Hughes in a cage. Bruce, so I, is that Ron and Don? Yes, Ron yeah. and Don. Uh, 
I, I can't remember if they use Bruce Brothers uh, there or not. Uh, Ronnie and Donnie are great guys, man. Super, super guys. And uh, and boy, what a great great look they had. You know, just two two you know six ten whatever they are monsters. Mm-hmm. That long hair. You know, they just they, they just looked the part. And uh, I had intentionally, first of all, I started noticing that everybody was doing this, right? Just the same as the chairs and the tables and the F-bombs. Then it meant nothing. And I felt like, hey, I want to cut this beautiful face up. You know, I want to put blade to this face uh, that it's going to mean something. You know, the fans should sit there and, 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 you know, in my case, marvel in the fact that the franchise has finally been been stuck like a pig. And uh, in that match, you know, I still had the long hair then. And uh, we had set the spot up with these guys, but I would set spots up as if it comes up, not okay. At this point, we're going to do this. And uh, I could feel and sense from the audience that they, that they would come with it if they saw it at this point. And they both picked me up on their shoulders and battery ran me on all four sides in the post, right in the middle of the, uh, of the, of the, you know, the two fence sections, battering ram, battering ram, battering. And I had gotten the color went down. And I stayed down with my face down on my hair over my head, flat on the mat. Finally crawled myself to my knees. And as I kneeled up, still had the hair in my face. And I flipped the hair back. And there was this pause in the audience. And then boom, pop. Uh, that is really what we're looking for. I don't want the fans the entire time mumbling in here someplace. I want there to be some down here where they're digesting it. And other places where they go, holy fuck, and, and blow through the roof. And and that was the first time that I did it. Uh well, I'm, I'm surprised because you work for Bill Watts. You're in the NWA and WCW, so no one ever suggested it to you in any of those oh, promotions. Oh yeah, in, in Continental, the first time I ever got color was in Continental right. uh, with Eddie Gilbert. Um, I thought you meant in ECW. Uh, the uh, in Continental, we were building up to the story for Hugo, humongous uh, Sid Vicious, to be my cousin, and uh, <laughs> uh, they had him not. Sh- he had not shown up yet at the building, and I was in the ring wrestling a tag match. I want to say against Randy Colley, and Colley. Oh, it might have been one of the Samoans. Uh, I know Randy Colley for sure. And in the backstage area, this was at the uh, uh, the fairgrounds because the Boutwell Auditorium was being renovated at the time. I think it was every Monday or Tuesday night we ran there in uh, in uh, Birmingham. Uh, Eddie came to me and said, "Okay, this is what we want to do," and I had never done it, you know. So, uh, but I also was not going to let somebody else cut me because I had seen Davey Haskins let somebody cut him, and, and they weren't very uh, very careful in the way they did it. Uh, so Eddie told me to take some, you know, a bunch of aspirin and. And, uh, you know, beforehand, they had me drinking liquor in the back and running up and down the hallway in the back to make sure the, the aspirin was all circulating. Uh, but I didn't in my career for, for as long as my career has been blood has been a very small part uh, to me. Again, it had to make sense for the story. If, if the story it, it means that the franchise should have this exclamation point at the end of that uh, storyline, then it may then I would do it. Uh, I, I think in ECW, like, like, again, like I said earlier, uh, with a lot of the things in ECW, it would work. And then it became like just a flood of it. You know, and, and like a glut of, of of doing that stuff, and it, and it watered it down to the point where, like last night, we were watching through the Barely Legal, you know, to refresh my memory on some of the stuff, and the match with Rob Van Dam and Lance Storm. Uh, Lance, great worker, right? But he's he and and being a great worker, he's not going to want to hurt the other guy, and he was giving some really weak chair shots to Rob, and you could hear the audience reacting, uh. not, not so glad, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, if you're gonna do it do it you know you got it you had to do it 
Did you did you ever find yourself actually enjoying the experience? Because you know, I, I hear a few of the guys almost get like an addiction to the because because it releases endorphins, doesn't it? I mean, it's bloodletting yeah. that's been going for thousands of years, and, and you do get that sort of like natural high from it. Do you find that, or was it something you were never no. comfortable with? No, not, not not uncomfortable with it. Uh, you know, early on, you're scared to death, right? Like, you know, you're taught like, hey, stay away from razor blades, and there people use those to kill themselves and things. Uh, and especially your face, because you know your face is a is a pretty sensitive place. Uh, I remember very very early on in my training. Uh, oddly enough, right down a couple of miles down the road, there's a place called Poca, West Virginia, P O C A, West Virginia, and there Dominic was running a a show there, and he had a lot of the uh, local guys. Uh, and I remember walking in and on the the gymnasium wall, they had the Poca dots. That was their 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 in, emblem. Intimidating. Of dots. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, it must rather be an explanation point than a dot, right? <laughs> but it's uh, so. And I was wrestling a guy named Irish Mike McGee, good guy. I haven't seen him in forever, and uh, he wanted to get color. He had this. He's just like, probably about my age, maybe a little bit older, but he had a Dusty Rhodes forehead, you know, mm. like and mainly for a, like a local guy. And Dominic, he, he went to Dominic and he said, "Hey, can I you know do this?" And Dominic said you know fuck no like what's wrong with you you know there's a couple hundred people out there if that and uh, we're mm -hmm. getting ready to go through the curtain for our you know to have the match and he's digging through the garbage can how's he doing in the garbage can right this is back way date myself right where they used to have the pull tabs on the top of the can oh yeah yeah and and he's digging through there and he pulls one of those out i said what are you going to do with that he goes i'm going to gig with it i said dominic said no he goes dominic said no blades and I was like, okay, brother, you're, you're on your own wow. at this point. Cause Dominic could get pretty hot on things. And, uh, and he did, he went out and he gaffed himself with that. And he later told me, I don't know if it was that night or some other night. He said to me before he got out of wrestling, he wanted to have a dusty Rhodes forehead. And I thought like, uh, great talent, dusty. Right. But not exactly the most handsome guy in the world. Mm. You know? So like, I was always concerned about that. Like having that, just that ogre look, you yeah, know, or like uh, being a unemployable in your later years because sure. no one's i mean no one in like a respect i mean you can't be like a receptionist or like a right. real estate agent so let me just show you that with that going on yeah or or you know even like if you walk into like say a c-level suite right i don't think many of the ceos are gonna be hiring somebody that has this you know this road <laughs> roadmap on their forehead yeah, you better uh, have so a job I, with a hat as part yeah, of the uniform so, but i i never was afraid to do it i never was uh uh, I never got the rush like you're saying, although I've seen the guys that do, like Irish Mike McGee was one of those guys, obviously. Um, uh, to me, it had to, it, it's the age old thing that I preach all the time now to the kids in seminars. It has to make sense. If it's just, okay, boom, you're punched and there you go and you do that. And by the same token, the flip side of that is if, if in a match, I throw your face into a post and a steel iron post and you're not bleeding, uh, why aren't you bleeding? The only reason it could be because that must be, you must not have really hit the post or whatever. And so like those come and coming up like I did, and I know it's been a long time. Uh, those guys, the Bill Watts and the Dominics and Brunos and those guys from that generation, everything had to make sense. If it didn't make sense, if you get shot in the, in the eye between the eyes and a second later, you're up doing backflips and running the, the ropes. Well, then that must've been a fake bullet. You didn't really get shot. Uh, it has to make sense. And I think today when you apply that litmus test, very, very little of what you watch makes sense. 
Uh, going back to Barely Legal or the run-up to it, uh, is it true that Todd Gordon, who was a figurehead commissioner only at the time, and Paul Heyman were at odds over ECW going to pay-per-view? I think I mentioned this to you just off-air, and you hadn't heard yeah. that, had you? I hadn't heard that. Uh, you know, if you again, my promo from Barely Legal, and I know we'll get into that later. Uh, you know, it's in my head someplace, and when I see it, then it comes rushing back in the memories. Uh, you know that I, I said when I became when I came back to ECW from WWF that I would lead it to the Nirvana, the pay per view in wrestling, and uh, that was for wrestling then and and still today. Um, although, albeit different outlets today on how you can uh, you know obtain it in your home. Uh, that really was the sweet spot. And I remember when pay-per-view started first closed circuit and then pay-per-view, uh, they, they had the first one and did so well. Then they started thinking, okay, maybe we have four, like quarterly. We can do these. Then it became monthly. And now it became like every few weeks, there's something on. And what, and I remember the arguments in the dressing room, you know, back and forth with, in management at the time, like what's too many, what's not enough. Like we obviously want to squeeze the sacred cow for all we can get out of it, but you also, don't want to lose sight of who your audience is. And I think that's important for any business. You know, I came from a very blue collar family, uh, proud of it, uh, you know, worked and still with work ethically. Most of the listeners out there today, uh, for my family to, to, to lay out, whether it was like you said, 1995 or nine or $70 or 50 bucks, that's a lot of money out of the average family's monthly paycheck when you have rent and food and six mouths to feed and, and, you know, go get gas in the car and so forth. Uh, you know, so you got to try to find where that sweet spot is. Uh, and, but I remember that in the earliest days, that being a, a discussion, I, d I don't recall ever hearing uh, logger jams between Todd and Paul my recollection of Todd and Paul was very much that they were working hand in glove, you know, that they, they, they were very uh, compatible and working. I've since seen some of the excerpts, I haven't yet read the book, but I've seen some of the excerpts from Todd's book. And over the years, I'd heard the stories more of uh, the hostility between them. Uh, honestly, we, I, I, from my purview in the dressing room, had never seen that uh, at the, at the time, but pay-per-view was obviously, that was the place where ECW had to go ultimately, if it was going to succeed. And, uh, you know, the, and the whole buildup to, like you said earlier, that's why I was shaking my head that the whole soap opera that was the buildup to barely legal was, uh, I think a whole lot more in depth than the, than the average fan out there would may remember or recall. Do you know, you, uh, actually brought to what I was going to ask next. I've just got heats between Todd and Paul because, uh, obviously, you know, Todd is ousted. There's the whole, Mole story. We're not going to spoil the mole story for you because Todd Gordon right. has written in his book, and I promised I wouldn't say uh, what it was because <laughs> he wants people to buy the book. Obviously, it's Todd is God, sure. by the way. And uh, But there is one thing that Todd was sort of ousted to a point in 1995 because Paul Heyman buys ECW from Todd, and then Todd's kept around as a figurehead commissioner for a couple of years afterwards before yeah. he goes. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the period uh, when Todd sells to Paul? And do you remember the reasons why? Or was this around the WWF time you were away? Yeah. Well, there, there's sort of an ambiguous gray area here. Like, did he really buy it from him? Uh, around that time, and I can't remember, Todd was always at the shows, right? And and you'd always see him. I would typically interact through Todd at the office. I would call him at the office, uh, his office. And... Uh, uh, and he was around for a period of time. Then all of a sudden he, he was maybe coming later in the night, uh, maybe not showing up at all. And we knew that there was something going on in the dynamic. We didn't know exactly what was going on. And, and 
I've heard different versions of the story. Maybe you've heard fact and, and can clarify for me. Uh, we had heard one of the versions I heard was that Paul paid off what Todd had invested in the company and so brought him back to even. Uh, I'd heard that he bought the company. I heard that he ousted like it was sort of a violent takeover. Uh, uh, and and I, I don't know if I've ever heard the, tr the true story or the straight story. Uh, I, I've recently heard that that he bought it. And, and that every time I hear one of these like memes that come through, I sort of grin because I there's always like, like it, with fake news today, there's always another page to the story, right? There's always something more that's not being told. And in that story, I've not yet read Todd's book, but I'd be very interested to see what he has to say about it. We uh, Todd is God, by the way. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you can get yes. it everywhere. And it is a very good book as well. Um, do you remember, right, so... Barely Legal should have actually aired originally in late 1996. But Wade Keller, uh, whatever business it was of his, uh, alerted Request TV to an incident that happened in late 1996 that actually put off all the pay-per-view providers. Do you remember what that incident was? What, I'm, God, I was hoping it could come in the form of a question. Was it the branding incident with uh, with Todd and uh, or Todd with uh, Terry and uh, Mick? No, uh, I believe, or what I've read, is it was the mass transit incident. Oh, yes. And, yeah, yeah. that absolutely, absolutely pushed back the pay-per-view. This is when Paul then had to start doing, you know, a goodwill tours to all the pay-per-view providers to try and get them to change their mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what a perfect time to talk about the mass transit incident then. From beginning sure. to end... Uh, what do you remember? It was called Eric Kulas. I've, for some reason, I've written no information yes. on it. So Eric Kulas turns up, and uh, from beginning to end, what happens? Well, in this rare instance in ECW lore, I, I play an integral role to this because I was there. Uh, Kaz, me, and Paul were sitting at a card table in, in the, uh, the Wonderland, which was a dog race uh, venue. And uh, we would have the shows in the... Uh, the you know where the fans could sit inside in air conditioning and stuff, and we'd set up in a hallway there. They had a big opening area like where the concession stands and things were. Excuse me, and we had to take the ceiling tiles and things out. Me and Taz were sitting there talking with Paul. Paul had a little card table that he would set up uh, uh, and doing his booking and, and things for the show that night. And I remember Eric Kulis walking in with one of the. the uh, uh, be careful here, right? Uh, uh, you know, having had Dylan on my show a, a couple weeks ago, you know, and he, he's fine with it. Uh, but a midget wrestler, a little person wrestler, right? That, that had come in with, and I, for, for the life of me, I'm so sorry, I cannot remember who, what the name, what his name was. But I remember him sitting, and Taz around this time got up and walked away. Uh, he wasn't the midget Eric, wrestler, by the way, was he? Taz. Eric Coolis? No, Taz. Oh, Taz. Taz. <laughs> oh, no. Boy, brother, you're going to have heat. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, uh, and Eric stood there uh, very quietly, and the guy that he'd come with had said to Paul, can you get my guy on the show? And Paul turned to Eric Kulis and asked him a couple questions. How long have you been training? He said, two years. He said, uh, who trained you? He said, Killer Kowalski. Uh, he asked him if he'd ever bladed, and he said, yes. Uh, Paul then said, I, I only have one opening on the show. It's against New Jack. You can have it if you want it. And he said, yes. Uh, now, at this point, I, I was around. I, I can't separate from like what I actually heard with my ears. Uh, but I do recall hearing the conversations about it. New Jack saying to him, don't worry, I'll cut you. 
Uh, I don't know if I heard that with my own ears, but I do know that I, I heard Eric Kula say he was willing to blade um, at that show. We had, and Paul had also asked him his age and he said 19. So, you know, he was a big, heavy kid. So it was really hard to tell, you know, this kid was what he said. And it wasn't typical in a dressing room when you'd walk in and say, Hey, I'm Shane Douglas. I'd like to wrestle for you today. How do you have an ID? Right. It, it just wasn't <laughs> something you did. And, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, he accepted uh, the match and I was now back preparing for my match. And as I recall, it was me and Tammy Francine and, and Candido and in one of the dressing rooms all the way at the end of the hall. And I hear this hustle bustle going on, like something's clearly wrong. A lot of times that would happen in ECW. You assume that there might be a riot or something going on. So we all ran out and uh, there's this mayhem and screaming and the scream is coming from the father. Uh, you know, my, uh, I mean, like really, really frantic. And then I look on the monitor and there is just a puddle of blood in the ring. And I'm like, I'm confused. Like what in the hell happened here? And their ambulance is taking the kid out and they got compresses on his head and his dad's moaning and wailing and uh, it just mass confusion. Uh, and you know, then, you know, the follow-up on the story of course comes through just the years of hearing the story being retold, uh, that he had gone into a depression and subsequently died at some point after that, uh, you know, an, an awful, awful thing. And, and I think the fans know enough out there that whenever I say these things, I'm not saying these things to protect or uh, convict Paul Heyman. I was there when the kid told Paul, he was 19 years old, that he had wrestled for two years, that he'd been trained by killer Kowalski and that he had bladed previously. Uh, so what goes on from there? You know, for for the fans out there that may not understand the dynamics in a wrestling dressing room, if you and I are wrestling tonight, and I say to you, "Hey, do you feel comfortable doing A, B, or C?" Uh, and you say yes, then I'm going to assume that you know how to take A, B, or C, and and, and how to protect yourself as long as I deliver it, you know, safely to you. Uh, and and of course, you know, there's so many rooms for margins of error. You know, you're sweaty, tired, blown up something in the ring gives there's a million different variables that can can go into that but uh the where the mistake was made like i said earlier about davy haskins watching uh him let somebody else cut him never let somebody else cut you in this business uh you know and if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself then don't do it uh obviously new jack cut too far now i've heard new jack's take on the story and and uh you know full disclosure jack and i were friends uh, but New Jack, there was a, a mystique, a myth, a mythical side of New Jack that, uh, Jerome, you know, would, would, would play on. And I think, you know, he said, he, he you know, later he would say he tried to kill the kid and, you know, glorify it. That was building his image. Uh, you know, certainly a tactless thing, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think clearly in the case that Jack cutting him, cutting obviously too far, uh, too deeply. Uh, but that in and of itself should not be, I don't want to say it's not dangerous. I mean, you cut into an artery, obviously that's dangerous, but when you have medical attention there and, and we did, uh, and you're being tended to, and you're, you, you know, you're taken to the hospital, that's a fairly mundane repair to, to sew up an artery and, uh, you know, and, and close the, the kid up and everything. Uh, I don't for a second suggest that Eric deserved what happened to him. Uh, but 
when you come into wrestling, like we all understand there for everything is an for every action, equal or greater reaction. You have responsibilities to your actions. Uh, when you go into a dressing room like ECW and I, and by this time, you know, ECW's image was fairly renowned. Uh, it wasn't like you walked in there. Holy crap. I had no idea this is what ECW was. Uh, when you go in there and misrepresent something, there are repercussions to that. And, and I, again, I don't suggest that Eric deserved what happened to him. Uh, but you know, it, it's to go in and, and what blew me away was the father was not there at the table earlier in the night. He was, I don't know if they wouldn't let him in the dressing room or if he was somewhere else in the dressing room area. But when I saw him there afterwards, I mean, I, I'm a father, so I can obviously imagine my son being in this position and, and how stressful and awful that must have been. But I also wouldn't let my kid walk into a wrestling dressing room by himself and representing things that may or may not be true. Uh, but it, that, you know, that was one of those things. And, and, and some macabre way, uh, I think that that lent to the ECW image, uh, as crazy as that sounds, uh, there was this, and still is in some places, this image of ECW that permeates that somehow we were just a bit crazier, uh, a bit more dangerous, whatever. The fact is, ECW was as safe as any place else, uh, at least from, from my point of view on it. Uh, we did push the envelope, and, and uh, when I say we, we had others in the company that would push the envelope, you know, the swinging scaffolds. And I watched on, on Barely Legal, uh, you know, Dick take his choke slam off the uh, yeah. crow's nest from from uh, Tommy Dreamer. You know, those those are hard, hard bumps to take. And in any one of them, you know, something catastrophic could happen. The fact that it didn't more often happen in ECW, I think, to me, is is, is more the bigger like wow factor that is that there weren't more people seriously injured in ECW because of the way they pushed the envelope. But I think again that that's more to the testament of how safe the wrestlers were being in while they were executing this stuff. Do you know while you were talking that I was actually thinking of another incident where someone with no experience claimed that they had more experience and said, Can you take this move? Of course I can take this move. I know what I'm doing. Chuck Austin with uh, Marty Gennetti. And uh, he said, of course, I can yeah. take the rocker dropper. And he took it like a, a DDT instead of a, a face-first affair. And I believe he also misrepresented his experience. And yeah. those are sort of more extreme consequences of what can happen when you're less experienced than you let on. Yeah, I was there that night. And I remember watching. I didn't realize it had happened during the rocker drop. Uh, they had, If you remember right after that, they had climbed up and did like the double fist drop yeah. on him. Uh, and when they hit the mat, the way his body sort of flopped, you could tell there was something seriously wrong. When you see somebody not moving at all, uh, in our business, that's a dead giveaway that there's something wrong. Uh, when you're selling, you should always be moving, especially as a baby face, right? Never die as a baby face. So you're always crawling, trying to get back to your knees, keeping your face up, the old steamboatism. Uh, it was evident immediately after the the fist drop anyway that something was wrong because the way when they hit the mat like his arms and legs sort of like rolled over each other and just was laying there flopped uh yes there are very serious and for the kids that i mean you know as you were saying that i image popped in my head there was a case i believe in florida some years ago where a bigger kid was playing with a, a girl in the neighborhood they were wrestling and this bigger kid like basically beat this little girl to death and uh you know for everybody listening out there understand that we are trained at what we do uh, just like, you know, stuntmen in Hollywood, 
and and still the margin of error. I mean, you can see all the zippers on my body. You know, it's uh, we we still have the, the, a, a pretty great margin of risk that's involved there. So to be untrained and not knowing how we do the things that we do, uh, you know, basic physics of disbursement of of, of impact and things like that, uh, you could get very seriously injured in doing the things that we do. Uh, and you know, they used to put this claim. I don't know if they still do because I don't watch the shows that often, but this claim please don't try this at home. And, you know, I think that that's a little bit generic that they should go a little bit more into it. And I think if they would have, uh, and maybe they do again, I don't watch their, their stars of their show saying, Hey, you kids at home, don't do this because these things can happen. Uh, but yes, there's in what we do out there. The, the thing that always amazed me is because of what we do and how we do the things we do on the basis that we do them traveling around the world and zipping like hundreds of miles here and there running into the building, getting dressed and going to the ring. And th that is a very nightly common occurrence. The fact that there aren't vastly more injuries in wrestling and vastly more serious injuries in wrestling, I think is a testament again to the to the professionalism of the, of the you know the, the men and women in the dressing room, uh, and, and that they're taking care to protect each other more more so from what I'm seeing more injuries today than ever. But when you go back and you watch ECW, that was again my takeaway watching Barely Legal last night was. Man, there were some hellacious bumps in that show, and there were some huge, huge things. You know, Sammy with the barbed wire and the whipping with the barbed wire. Uh, you know, and, and at one time you could see the barb hook into, yeah. into Hack's back. Uh, you know, when you see those things and going through it and realizing there were scant few times in the dressing room when somebody would come back and you'd be like, "Oh man, they're seriously hurt." Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Funk walking in with color, never didn't raise any issue or Sam man or Sabu or whoever. Uh, but the fact that a lot more serious injuries didn't happen and, and the way that we were executing things, I, I think is just more testament to the professionalism of the men and women that made up ECW. With uh, just going back on Chuck Austin briefly, because I wanted to bring it up again, as you say, you remember it happening at the time. There's two things. One, I've only just learned that because um, he he ended up paralyzed. I think he um, paraplegic rather than quadriplegic, but I, don't quote me on that. Mm, uh, eventually, uh, when he started recovering, um, it's called fencing response. Apparently, when your body sort of automatically closes in, and it's almost like your your wrists almost flop around. Anyway, I've actually seen it. Yeah. It's a terrible sight to see. Yes. Secondly, uh, when I interviewed Tony Atlas not too long ago, he was also in the back, and he said that he heard Vince McMahon after he was paralyzed. Maybe he didn't realize what the extent of the injuries were. Maybe no one did. I'm sure. But uh, his response was. Get that piece of crap out of my ring so we can get the next match on. That's how just heartless, um, yeah. you know, the uh, at least the WWF was at that time. Yeah, look, I, I as fans know out there, I'm not one to to, to run cover for Vince McMahon, but uh, I, I would find that it, it, there's part of me that could say I, I could see him saying that. Uh, but if he did say that, I am certain that he wasn't aware that the kid was seriously injured. Probably just thought, like, hey, let's get him out of there and get the next match in. And, you know, and, and we were talking about this yesterday on the way down. There's the infamous uh, clip of uh, Trump in 2015 that airs uh, from the Billy, what was his name? Billy something or other, you know, saying some fairly crass things. And, you know, Moose having played semi-pro ball for 29 years and me being in wrestling for 40 years, both of us looked at that and said, that's just locker room banter. You know, you, I'm sure you've been in plenty of locker rooms and you hear guys just, you know, braggadaciously saying things and, and, and throwing things out. Yeah, most people, most average people walking down the street would probably be mortified if they heard 
some of the comments that go on in the dressing room. That's how you, you it's it's one way of releasing the tension of being on the road and stressed out. In Pittsburgh, we call it busting balls, right? You, you, your buddies and stuff. You never get a compliment. It's always like some sort of like kick in the teeth, but it's camaraderie with your friends. Uh, and, and Vince, you know, again, being the businessman he is, I mean, clearly if he thought this kid was that injured, he knows there's going to be liability involved. And obviously anything being said overtly like that would be become evidence in a trial. Uh, and and one thing I've never said that Vince is is stupid. Uh, so I, I'd find that hard to believe. And if it was said, he probably thought, Hey, the kid's just, you know, knocked exaggerating out. Yeah. or right. Knocked out, get him, get him out of there, whatever. Uh, but you know, it's, you never want to see that happen to anybody, period. Uh, you know, that that's an awful thing. Draws later and, you know, on Tommy passing away here recently. Uh, I remember Austin as, as being a good kid in, in the dressing room, you know, you know willing to, to go out there and help get you over and things like that. Like 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 99.9% .9 of the talent in the dressing room always is. Uh, so when you see things happen like that, and then, you know, easy for me because I can get in my car and drive away and my life goes on. Uh, understanding that guys like draws in Austin, uh, th this becomes now a lifelong second to second affliction that they deal with every day in their life. And I, it, it's heartbreaking to hear that. And then worse, like when you hear like, you know, in Mexico, a few years ago, the kid dying in the ring, uh, and over the decades, you know, different people dying in the rings around the world and stuff. That is the last thing in professional wrestling we want. I don't want anybody ever to get hurt. I don't want anybody to ever be seriously injured and impaired for the rest of their life. And I certainly don't want anybody to die. Uh, that is why we train to do what we do and how long we train before you become. It, it, there's a reason why you don't walk right out of a wrestling school, like in my case, Dominic Tanucci's, and suddenly you're in the main event on WWE or, or you know, or WCW or wherever, uh, is because it takes time to learn how to perfect that craft. Uh, when I asked you about the mass transit thing beforehand, I brought up that Wade Keller had written to Request TV and then sort of in brackets put uh, whatever business it was of his to uh, inform yeah. uh, other pay-per-view business uh, 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 providers. Uh, first off, the industry newsletter, specifically the Wrestling Observer, deserves some credit for actually getting ECW on the map in the first place. So uh, I believe that Eddie Gilbert was the one who had the in with Dave Meltzer, started sending in the results, and that sort of raised ECW's profile and Todd Gordon told me uh, recently that that was actually one of his goals when he started ECW was to start getting noticed by the industry inside of newsletters. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, more specifically, did Wade Keller do anything for ECW or or against ECW in your mind as far as his writing goes? Uh, I wasn't a big reader of the sheets. You know, typically in the wrestling dressing room, you'd hear, uh, hey, did you see what Meltzer wrote or did you see what Wade Keller wrote? Uh, uh, his was called The Torch, I believe. Yeah, um, Pro Wrestling Torch, PW and Torch, yeah. Pro wrestling torch, yes. Uh, they, they, like anything in life, there's a yin and a yang, right? There's you know very few things that are just all good or all bad, um, you know. So and Bob Ryder, another one I think we have to put in the end of that caption with with Meltzer and Keller and and all the other writers. Uh, like Bruce uh, Mitchell, I think he's one at the time. Mitchell, right? Uh, yeah. Then uh, uh, Dave, uh, what was Dave's name from Philadelphia? Um, I apologize to the guys. I'm just so bad, but always have been bad at names. Anyway. Uh, you know, if the sheets are going to give you the the, the exposure, then you, you shouldn't be too, you know, put off if they hold you accountable in some ways and, and criticize. Where I think the problem comes in, at least in my from my perspective, I would never go on and say, uh, "What the hell does LeBron James know? He's wrong about foot basketball." I think this uh, LeBron James probably has a little bit better acumen in, in, in basketball than I have. 
but I would dare say my acumen is probably a bit better in professional wrestling than LeBron James's is. Uh, so, you know, it, it's that yin and yang. Bob Ryder, by the way, was, was another. I would watch Bob Ryder and how he did this, you know, again, with his, techno- his instant technologies that we have today is like so archaic. But he would sit there watching the matches and in real time type the matches out. And I would think my initial watching him doing this was, okay, he's typing this out. He's approximating what he's watching because it's going so fast, the action. Then I would later go back and start reading like what he wrote about my match and looking at it going, that's pretty damn close to what we did. Uh, But that instant getting communication out and getting it out to the world. And as we now know, didn't know at the time, but the, the tape trading that was so pervasive around we we had heard of the tape trading and i might be honest my thought was okay there's a couple hundred people out there trading tapes someplace uh now a lot more ubiquitous than we than we would have realized at the time and that was i think ecw's achilles heels we didn't have a way to put finger on pulse and get real time like vincent man could probably tell you right now how many tickets to the seat are sold for whatever particular venue uh we had no way of doing that uh but with the sheets back to the sheets and, and and the ways of disseminating the information back then you know something as small as ecw in this little bingo hall in philadelphia was not going to be covered by a cnn or a fox news or a, even a maybe a major local philadelphian news station but paul and and todd early on would have me doing an awful lot of radio interviews in those places so you you, you know you you get the word out that way uh the sheets i think were primarily responsible for getting word out about that. And you'd said uh, about Eddie Gilbert. I know for a fact later Todd or uh, Paul Heyman was also very tight the night that uh, with, with, uh, with uh, uh, Dave Meltzer, uh, the night that Lance storm, we had spoken about before we got on the air uh, uh, the night that Lance debuted and hit a home run. We were in the line at the end of the night and I was, I'd never met him before. So we're talking in line waiting for our checks. And there's somebody in front of me, a shorter guy with a black leather jacket and dark curly hair. So I'm looking at this person behind him thinking like, who the hell is that? Like I'm trying to go into the dressing room. I had and going like, who, who built, who's got that kind of hair. And finally I walk out around and I look and, and Meltzer turns and I hate Shane. And I knew who he was, but I was like, what the hell's he doing standing in line for a paycheck? Right. Uh, you know, so we we were quite aware early on that po- probably both Paul and Eddie and Todd were all getting that out, and and it's again a necessary thing. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It was a necessary thing to get the word out about ECW, uh, and to push it as much as we could. The you know the problem is I, I think it's disingenuous when you say, well, Keller said something he shouldn't have said, or Meltzer printed something that we wish he hadn't printed. Uh, I'm a firm believer that be held to this, be held to the same account, you know? So like, if you want them to talk good about your company, don't, don't get, get all butthurt when they say something bad about your company, especially if it's legit, uh, learn from it. And, and, you know, when I would do my interviews back then, uh, and had quite a few of them as, as champion for ECW, the interviews like you would often do is anything you don't want to talk about, anything you want to stay away from. And I've, I always say, no, just throw it out. You know, if I don't want to talk about it, I'll dance around it. And, uh, but for me taking on those questions is wrestling real or is it fake? And is ECW different from these other companies? I could use those to hit grand slams because I then became simple. Watch WWF, watch WCW, watch ECW. And tell me if you don't see a difference between the three. Uh, you know, and I, I would never come out and say wrestling, you know, ECW was real, but it, there were, there would be these euphemisms that I would use that would butt right up to that. And so like the same thing with the seats, you know, we have to be careful. Uh, a lot of the wrestlers me included at times 
thinks that, uh, you know, if, if you want to talk to an authority about our business, it's probably better to like, if I want to talk to somebody that's an authority on, on the, the Pittsburgh Steeler teams from the seventies, Terry Bradshaw is probably going to be a better source of information than say some journalist out there. Uh, I'm not saying that the journalists can't be well-read and well-versed in that stuff, but Terry Bradshaw was in that locker room. Terry Bradshaw was on the field for that team. And so, you know, I think a lot of the guys have, you know, some bitterness to that there's other guys out there that doing something that they hadn't thought of beforehand. Uh, but, you know, and, and at times, quite honestly, maybe they're not qualified to speak on those things, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, reverse or undermine what they're saying you know so it's you know if you want to live by the sword die by the sword if you want to live by hey when they're saying shane douglas had a five-star match and i love the sheets now they say he had a zero star match well they suck uh you know it's it's yin and yang uh, we are going to go back on Bailey legally, and after many months of false starts and negotiations, finally uh, gets a start date for April 13th, 1997. Vince McMahon and the WWF also grants Paul and ECW an extraordinary amount of airtime over the course of a couple of months on WWF television, including getting some of the ECW guys to turn up and have matches in the Manhattan Center and then have a debate with Jerry Lawler in the run-up. I presume, Shane that you weren't invited to participate in these ECW-WWF crossover episodes? Or were you actually asked and you declined? It's a great a great question and an interesting story. Uh, I was in the studio. Uh, I forget if it was when my elbow was messed up or if I was... No, I think it was when I was doing the... Uh, uh, for, I would fly up occasionally do the promos they would might need that they hadn't recorded at the building. And... Vince had called the studio. This is after I was already aware that Vince and Paul had some kind of relationship. And uh, he called and, you know, Paul did one of these, you know, had Vince on speaker. And he said, uh, you know, what about the franchise? And because Paul was telling him who was going to be there. And he said, oh, Shane's not going to come. And he said, well, why? <laughs> As if Vince man had to ask that question. And he kept pressing and Paul kept, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to chime in here. And Paul keeps saying, like, tell me, stay quiet. And uh, Paul finally said to him, is Shawn Michaels going to be there? And he said, well, of course. And he said, then trust me, you don't want Shane there. <laughs> and that sort of like left it at, at, at that. I, I, you know, it's, you know, I, I hear from the fans, and I'm sure from the fans' perspective, they can look in a million different uh, ways and, 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 and interpretations. When I left there, I said I'd never work for him again. Because I had gone up there on good faith. I had left ECW, a place that I never wanted to leave, uh, that I had helped build and start and create and, and craft into what it had become. I was happy, like the old saying, I was happy as a pig and shit in ECW. Uh, uh, I loved the fans. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the, the product, the style. I loved the dressing room. I loved everything about it. So there was really no reason for me to leave. And I, between my teaching and ECW, I was making far more money than I would later make in WWF in 95. Excuse me. So there was no reason for me to leave. Uh, but when I went up there on good faith, I had walked away from what was essentially my home and for what my career had become known for. Excuse me. So that to me was more than me splaying myself for the WWE. I am opening myself up to you and giving you the opportunity to, to use this character. Uh, in hindsight, I still 
I don't think I've ever heard an official version of the story from the company. But when I look back and I see uh, the paychecks, the pay stubs, which, by the way, Meltzer plays into this, and I'll explain in a second. Uh, I call home one day, and my ex-wife said, where the fuck's all of our money? And she rarely swore and almost never used the F word. So I, I said to her, well, I've been on the road busting my ass. You've been the one getting checks. She told me they weren't very good. She, Long story short, she gets them out and culminates them and tells me that $1,600 for four months pay stubs. I'm like, no, no, all of them together. And she tells me that is all of them together. I about had a stroke wherever it was I was sitting when I heard that and couldn't wait to get my hands on Vince's throat. And uh, when we finally met, uh, you know, we have this back and forth. All I wanted really from him was to say what I'd heard Dustin tell me. Keep hitting this microphone. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's, a bit of, that, it's a bit of an ungainly sort of uh, uh, yeah, uh, arrangement. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, Dustin had told me he'd given a $10,000 advance on his salary. And that was really all I wanted him to hear him say. Just let me pay my bills. If I'm out here working 28 days a month and flying all over God's creation and bumping myself all over the place then I surely want to be able to pay my $496 a month mortgage payment. And, uh, you know, and I was not one that go out of anybody, talk to anybody that's ever been on the road with me. I don't go out and buy the $100 steak dinner or the $300 hotel room. I, I live very austerely as I can on the road, uh, which is the way I was trained from Dominic and Bruno. So, you know, to, to go and look at this and see this, uh, and, and he kept saying, just hang in, it's going to get better, hang in, it's going to get better. And I had to put my notice in. When I finally got out of that contract and left, and we've already been through that story, uh, I swore to myself, I'm never I will never put myself in his hands again to 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 allow that to happen. You know, it's an old saying, uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It was not, not gonna be a shame on me. Uh and the fact that I've been able to in, in 2023 to still be sitting here on a on a relevant recent show like you you do. Uh, and going out and hearing the fans on a nightly basis like we do today uh, tells me that, thank God, I've been able to carve out that niche in the, in the business, and I've created for myself a, 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 a lasting, hopefully, legacy uh, of what the franchise represented in wrestling. And I did that without ever having been on a WrestleMania or having to kiss literally or figuratively Vince's ass. Uh, there, there's something to be said about that. I, I think that the way that a lot of people get treated in this business is even though we've you know gone forward light years from where I broke into the business, in many ways, the old vestiges that long precede me in wrestling still exist in wrestling. And, and I think that's really pathetic when you look and you see uh, you know the, 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 the damage that the guys in our business take. Uh, you never hear, will hear a wrestler that's on the road and, and being figured in. You'll never hear one of the wrestlers say, this sucks. Why do I have to be on the road so much? Why do I have to go to the ring every night and wrestle? This is all, all of our dream. And so like to be sitting there and living, like Paul Stanley said, if you want to be a politician, don't bitch when you have to wear a tie. Mm. Part of it is being on the road, uh, a, a big portion of it. And yes, there are sacrifices that you make, seeing your first kids, your kids' first words, his first steps, his first day of school, things like that. Uh, there's the infamous story of uh, of uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, missing, having to miss his father's funeral because he had to defend the title. Uh, this is what professional wrestlers do. And we sign on to that voluntarily at the beginning. So to somehow at the end say, well, we're paying you shit in that, in those pay stubs in that uh, four months, there was a war in Ohio, which oddly enough is where I started my wrestling, my amateur wrestling career in a club many years before. 
uh, in the semi-main event in a damn near sold out Packard music hall, I was paid $55. And I'm pretty sure Razor probably made a little bit more than 55 bucks. Uh, so where Dave Meltzer came into this was he had gone out in his sheet and said something like, I'm lying. Because I remember making the, the comment to Meltzer, whether it was directly, uh, I said, I will show you the pay stubs provided you print them exactly as they look in your sheet. And he refused. Um, I still have them, by the way. Anybody ever wants to see them, I'll be more than happy to show them to yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. It's, I uh, want to see them. Yeah. Do you, yeah, do you keep uh, all that thing, all that stuff, all yeah. the pay stubs and everything, all your paperwork pay, from the 90s? Oh, right? everything, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And and early part, because I was just like a, a pack rat, you know, as far as like keeping professional papers. Uh, but also, uh, I wanted now in hindsight, looking back, I wanted to be able to make sure that I always had that proof because I know that fans are always highly suspect of things that we say and things that we do because our business is a work, right? So uh, my contracts I still have, which by the way, I just in the last year had recently shown to, to an attorney for another reason. Uh, but yeah, I have all those old contracts I have. And, and the reason I think is part because it was a monumental point in my, my life, you know, in, in, in pursuing the dream that I had of being a wrestler, I wanted to have these mementos so that down the road, my boys could look at them and see the, the, the to connect the stories. They hear some, someday that my kids might be watching this show somewhere online and wanting to say, Hey, let's go back and pull those files out from dad's file cabinet and see if, if what he's saying is legit there. Um, you know, so yeah, I kept all that stuff and, uh, you know, I think that's more a an indictment of the WWF I, I, because it was still WWF then and Vince McMahon that it is Shane Douglas. Uh, again, I had gone up there and I voluntarily departed from my home in ECW. And, you know, I've heard since other people say, well, you know, when you go to work for Vince, Vince wants you to prove yourself or Vince wants you to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, like or take take it, you know, just so that like, until you like get over the hump or whatever. But with all due respect. By, by that point of my career, 95, I would have been 13 years into my career uh, and had more than proven myself as a talent with all the promotions that I had been with. The last thing that Shane Douglas needed was to be tested or, or to prove his mettle. Uh, and then in Todd's book, one of the things, again, I've not read it, but he, Todd told me about this excerpt. Uh, Todd is God, by the way, like you said. Uh, Todd with one D is God. I hope he uses a yeah, little. He's going to love this, you know, as well. <laughs> no, oh yeah, was, yeah Todd's, Todd, Todd, great guy, and really, you know, what ECW became really was built on the foundation that he he put there for us. But uh, he had said that uh, he was, you know, he maintained close contacts with uh, like Jage Dillon, and he was talking to JJ one time, and he asked JJ, "How's our boy doing?" And he said, "JJ said you can have him back." And I, and for all the fans out there, I'll say full disclosure. Once I saw $55 on my paycheck for Packard Music Hall, my job as a heel, whether I was going over or under, was to get the guy over, in this case, Razor, that I'm working with. And I, again, I think I've proven myself over the years that I'm pretty good at getting other people over. If you're going to pay me $55, I take that very directly as a fuck you. And if it's a fuck you to me, if you think I'm going to go out and bust my hump and bump all over the place and work my ass off to get your guy over and you're going to pay me 55 bucks. Well, I'm probably going to pull back on the accelerator a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, th that's no embarrassment to me. That's the way I was taught. You know, if I'm getting paid pennies, you're going to get a few bumps. If I'm paying, being paid lavishly, I'll bump myself all over that building. But uh, you know, so there was, a, you know, you hear the, like Sean Michaels, uh, I've heard an interview say, well, he wasn't very good. 
Well, Sean, if I could go out and have pretty good matches with Sabu and pretty good matches with Taz and Terry Funk and and uh, uh, Sandman and the Pitbulls and and and, then why couldn't I have with you? Because if, if you know, it, it takes two to dance, right? And and so like if the case is that you know you're trying to say that well somehow like I just can't carry the water. Uh, again, I'd proven that consistently over a pretty long period of time. And so, like, I, again, I think it's more of an indictment, I think, for what the fans have come to know about the inside of the WWE workings. And this is, by the way, not just me saying these things. You can hear this diatribe from a, from a lot of people that have been there and come and go, uh, is that, uh, you know, because of their click and because of the politics that were involved in, the, in there and everything, and that Vince allowed it to happen. That's why I go back and forth. I vacillate between, was this a planned thing by Vince McMahon or was this something that just sort of happened and sort of grew out of control once I was there? Uh, I, I mostly fall down on the side of it. it was a plan by Vince because if you go back and you look and I and at the in the uh, barely legal uh, promo right before the match, I say as much. Uh, where I, I think the line was uh, a challenge to pussies from other promotions and they ain't man enough to come. Uh, you know, so going out and saying those kind of things. And, you know, fully willing to that, if one of them had accepted, say, okay, <laughs> let's get it on then. Let's do this. Uh, you, That was a pretty good way to shut me up. And once you took Shane Douglas out of that dressing room, not that we didn't have other guys that could deliver pretty good promos, that there was not another Shane Douglas franchise in that dressing room. And so, uh, you know, I, but from that point of view, it seems pretty clear that this was a way for Vince to get me to shut up and, and that microphone in my hand there. Whichever way it was, I like I said earlier, I was not going to put myself back in Vince's uh, grip to be able to do that to me again. Because it took me a long time to dig out of that hole that I had created in that barely six months that I was in a WWF in 95. Uh, leading up, uh, leading on from that, excuse me, is Jerry Lawler is on WWF television, the main opponent of ECW, probably well on screen and maybe in real life as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's uh, the greatest distractor, uh, distractor, detractor, excuse me, uh, burying the company, calling it extremely crappy wrestling, and also commenting on the height of wrestlers, specifically Taz, saying he looked a lot bigger on the Lucky Charms box. Uh, now, uh, ironically, <laughs> ironically, Jerry Lawler's five foot ten, so he's hardly all around yeah. that. So he's, <laughs> so he's hardly the giant of the industry, at least physically speaking. Um, <laughs> did you ever talk to Jerry one on one about ECW and? It was his animosity as genuine as it appeared on screen. No, I, I never talked to him about it directly. I, Jerry and I have always had a great relationship. Not that we've been around each other a whole time. You know, like I, you know, I was never in Memphis. And uh, when he was in WWE, when I was there, he was doing announcing. And so there wasn't a whole lot of crossover. But I, we, I remember one time when we were in Minnesota, he and I went to the Mall of America and you know hung out for the day. Uh, Jerry is superb as the character that can get something else over. Uh, and so the extremely crappy wrestling comment, we all popped on it. Right? It's, it's so, oh, it's so Jerry Lawler. It's so Jerry the King Lawler. Uh, but we also knew that our fans were going to go, fangs out, screw you, WWF. And and so again, the yin and the yang, the push and the pull of what you know. Jerry couldn't come and say, hey, you guys are a great promotion, but I'm going to come in and and and, and beat you. Uh, he was playing that role, and anybody that knows Jerry knows that. You know that that's how he you know proceeds. I mean, look at the stuff he did with uh, 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 the Lotka from uh, Taxi, Andy uh, Kaufman. Uh, Andy Kaufman. There you go. Uh, so 
you know, he's, he's one of the best ever in our business at getting another entity over. And I remember watching the, the Andy Kaufman thing back then in real time and wondering like, is this legit? Is it not legit? Cause it, when he came out on Letterman and smacked him, I mean, that was a smack and you know, just enough to blur that line that, you know, I, I consider Jerry like one of those masters that came before me that really can do this to perfection. And, and so we won the extremely crappy wrestling stuff and, and, you know, Taz, you know, look, look bigger on the, uh, the lucky charms box, all those little comments. We all popped at because I don't think Taz maybe. So I was going to say, I don't think Taz <laughs> but, did. <laughs> But, you know, it's, uh, you know, and for me, the, the, the bigger takeaway from all that was, look, if they're sending Jerry Lawler to the ECW arena and they're letting our guys on Monday Night Raw, there's obviously some kind of working relationship between Paul and Vince. And in my recollection, I can't tell you exactly where on the timeline, you know, I confirmed it to myself. But clearly when the phone call came into the studio, and you know, Paul broke his back trying to get out the door with with Vince on the speaker. Uh, uh, you know, it was evident to me at that point with all those things that had happened that there was much more going on there than meets the eye. And I did have a conversation with Paul. I said, "Look, you know, I don't know why you're in business with this guy. What the reasoning is?" I said, "I'll just tell you this: when he doesn't need you anymore, he'll stab you in the fucking back and throw you to the side of the road." And you know, pretty much he did did do that. What, you know, just like, like to wrap this up, I guess, a little again, soapbox time. What never made sense to me is that one thing that Paul had proven himself over and over again at being probably one of the best in the industry at is creating a character out of this young kid, Troy Martin, or this young kid, Terry Brunk, or what, you know, taking us and creating these characters that would become iconic characters for the next quarter century. I saw Devon Dudley last night and, and, and Tommy Dreamer. And I said, you know, do you realize how, how, what a special thing we got to experience that so few people in our industry get to experience. And, uh, and, and of course we all do. Uh, the, uh, the fact that there was that kind of relationship with, between Vince, you could argue, well, it had to be because you know, there's floating money in or whatever. My question always was, if Vince wanted to buy ECW bankruptcy, which he did, why would he make that announcement? Why would he not just put the word out that some investors came and gave Paul the money to buy the company? You're, he's still on your payroll. Let him run that as he wanted. It's less stress for you. you you can do some oversight from a distance but keeping it complete separate entities allow paul to continue to run that all the while funneling people to you instead of wcw uh, i think that would have stood a much greater chance of success than the new ecw like the new coca-cola right mm -hmm. is uh so not coke or so not ecw and i think ultimately the only answer that i have in my head is that vince mcmahon's uh uh larger than life ego uh you know his his uh belief that only he knows uh is is probably what kept him and precluded him from doing that but uh you know i think it would have been much better served to do it the other way than than the way they did it with um just going back to jerry lawler for a minute obviously i think this is after barely legal jerry lawler turns up to the ecw arena and the lights go out and you know the usual sabu kind of thing and then he comes up and <laughs> man that audience is stunned <laughs> Uh, they go through a range of yeah. emotions very, very quickly. Um, of all the people who got a reaction like that in the ECW arena, where does Jerry Lawler's uh, pop Ooh. or whatever it is? Uh, pretty close uh, to the top. Yeah. Yeah, 
pretty close to the top. I mean, because it was so Jerry by that time, you know, was so identified with wrestling, but also with WWE. But he's like a middle-aged guy as well. You know, he was in what his late forties at that point, and yet yeah. he can still he can still engender that kind of hate, like genuine hate from a crowd. I find mm. that, as you say, only the masters can do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, you you go through wrestling and see like how complete the history is with guys like that from each generation. You go back like in Bruno's generation and, and, and maybe bleeding a little bit towards Flair's generation. You didn't really ascend into that main event spot until your mid late forties and into your fifties. You know, and those guys were in such great shape. They could do that. And they, you know, they had all this years of, of career behind them. I think Harley race and Bruno and, you know, all the guys we're talking about, but Jerry for sure, because of these, these, like complete what become now generalizations in the pop culture. There are very few people that aren't aware of the Andy Kaufman angle. There are very few people that, especially that follow wrestling that aren't well aware of what puppies are or, mm. you know, the, the, the pulling the strap, but like, to be fair, Jerry Lawler never looked the part, right? I mean, like Harley race, they never looked like two tough guys, uh, albeit were tough guys. Uh, but that was what wrestling was, and that's how like we used we we throw the phrases around the masters, what I consider to be the masters. It doesn't matter that he's got that body. It doesn't matter that Hardy Race's legs were that skinny. It doesn't matter what their body looked like because my God, when they got into the ring, the the emotion they could engender in the audience. Like I always talk about Steamboat and you know how he could just literally play that audience like a orchestra. He could okay the strings now boom and the horns come in and hey the percussion over there now it's it was just like watching this it's like a magic trick and watching how this guy is in the ring thinking of spots and doing his bumps and everything and at the same time figuring out a way to work that side of the audience uh, it was just to me it just like I always say it took like wrestling from black and white to full color to me like it, like this is like a whole yeah, different of panorama thing, yeah. yes that yeah. that I could ever see prior was never a big fan of, of Memphis wrestling. We only got it on sp- sp- sporadic times in Pittsburgh. Uh, but to me, the, the Memphis wrestling was sort of like the, you know, I call this the, the Supremes of wrestling. Like, Stop in the name of love, right? It was like so like over the top, like corny stuff yeah. like that. But boy, what a what a part of the base of what became professional wrestling and then later sports entertainment that Memphis was. That was one of the, the integral key bricks, the keystones in that base that built wrestling. Uh, that you could maybe mute some of that cornier stuff down as you went forward, but that is part of what Steamboat's magic was, is figuring out how to do that, albeit in a much less corny way. Uh, those guys that could get into the ring and do that. And I, you know, from my generation, there were very few, if any, uh, a lot of great workers in my generation, but very few that could work the audience like that. And I would dare say probably none in my generation that could work the audience as completely as Jerry the King Lawler could work them. Uh, you know, but him showing up in that building, you asked about the pop. Uh, there were, first of all, the, those lights off, lights on pops were always legit, right? I mean, there were, you know, the fans when those lights went out, didn't know what they were going to get, but they knew when that light came on, there's going to be a holy shit something in the ring. And, uh, you know, again, testament to Paul's booking that he came up with that because, you know, anywhere along the line, if you do a lights out and lights on and there's, uh, you know, Joe Blow standing in the middle of the ring. You know, they would have just killed it. So, uh, and Jerry was at that moment, at that point in time in the whole wrestling industry legacy and lore that was wrestling then, 
in that building, there was probably no place else on planet Earth that Jerry Lawler could engender that kind of response. Uh, that was that legitimate. I, the, if those fans in that building that night could have gotten their hands on Jerry, Jerry would probably have been in some well, trouble. Well, that's actually what I was going to ask next is, do you think, I don't know how many times you've ever, exp- I know with the pit bull thing you did, uh, we won't talk about that, we'll talk about that another time. But yeah, yeah. I mean, was it getting towards white heat? Do you think there was actual legitimate danger uh, for Jerry? I, 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 partly yes, because in Philadelphia, I mean, oh, you know, wow. if you've seen any of the if you've seen any of the, the, the videos online recently of Philadelphia, um, you know, Philadelphia has always been a hard nosed, hard edged place. Most of those eastern seaboard cities are uh, because you have so many people living on top of each other. Uh, the but the ECW fans, the fans that were in the building that night. Those fans had become so integral. You've heard me in the past say that they were the sixth man on the bench for us. Like we we always knew we could elicit that response if given the right product. So for us, that was a an asset that we could use. We knew that those fans were in our pocket uh, and that they were rabid. So yeah, there no without question, there are some of the fans in that audience that night that would have hurt Jerry if they could have gotten their hands on him. And I also think there were a lot of the fans in the audience that night and every night in the ECW arena that we ran there, where they were playing the role of what they were supposed to be playing on camera. So uh, you know, a bit of a mishmash, probably not as much white heat as say like Terry Funk would have had in San Antonio or Amarillo in in say 1978. Uh, but you know, albeit. In that building that night, there's unquestionably somebody that would have stabbed Jerry if they could have gotten close enough or punched him in the face or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of questions here I'm going to skip, uh, and I'm going to tell you what they are. Uh, a giant Wrestling Observer report uh, about Brian Lee and Pitbull number two and stuff like that that happened a couple of weeks behind. I will get to it at another episode, I promise, because it's a yeah. great question. Uh, another question we're not going to get to, and we'll do it at a later time, was the banquet for Terry Funk's retirement the night before. We'll get to that on another episode, I promise. I want to talk to you very briefly about Barry Blaustein, who was in attendance with his camera crew uh, at the show filming the documentary Beyond the Mats, including shooting one of Paul's legendary rah-rah speeches in the back where he's halfway up the, you know, the rickety wooden steps. Uh, did you spend any time with Barry, and what did you think of the concept of Beyond the Mat, and did you want to be in it or not be in it? The uh, I did speak to Barry quite often. Uh, he, by the way, he would be at the arena more often than just that night. Mm. Um, again, for me, like when the action figures came out, the same thing with Barry doing doing his uh, documentary. All of these were going to be ways of getting the message out. Uh, you know, if, if you got some kid in Walmart buying a, a franchise figure, if you got some kid someplace watching Beyond the Mat. Um, these are ways of getting the word out about ECW. And so all of, you know, any press is good press, right? I don't know who said that, but I'm sure it was somebody pretty, pretty uh, well known. Uh, so so yeah, it was I, probably I, someone who owned a newspaper. You said that. Yeah. <laughs> any, probably news is, so. any news is good news. <laughs> right. But Barry was going around and talking to pretty much everybody. Uh, as I recall, he was there filming more than just once. And excuse me, the speech that Paul gave that night was not, Excuse me, it wasn't scripted. It wasn't something he just did because the cameras were there. That was something that Paul did quite often. And he, in my experience, was the best ever at seeing it. Like he he could instill in you the idea that you can go out and do this. Yeah, the odds are against us, but we can be the little train that does it, that chugs along. And, uh, you know, I hear these phrases today. We all drank Paul's Kool-Aid or whatever. Uh, 
the, the real fact of the matter is that we had all bought into the product. You know, we had all bought into each other. We had bought into the, the concept and we had, had fully put our bodies on the line to, to deliver that product and the goods to the fans. And it wasn't hard because the fans were rabid. Uh, but with Barry being there, like there, there was a part of me that you understand like where I came into the business, uh, you know, into that old school where kayfabe was like ultra protective and, you know, like, uh, Chris Angel doesn't come on like at the beginning of his show and say, okay, you're going to see me cut a lady in half today. Here's what I'm really doing. Uh, Cause then it, it sort of detracts from, from the specialness of what that, that trick is the same thing with wrestling. I think that once you expose so much of it, that it, it sort of becomes a little bit ho-hum and, you know, and you can see like online today, especially where fans are, you know, typing in their two cents worth. Um, well, it sort of stops. It, it, um, you know. it stops you sort of like watching what's on screen. You're almost like analyzing it. You, you become an analyst without even realizing yes. it. Yeah, and allow yourself to be sucked into it. Exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. it's. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a huge fan for for movies. I love love going to the movie theater and if the movie's the right movie, uh, and allowing myself to let my brain just wander off and go to wherever that's going to take me. Uh, same thing with wrestling matches, a kid watching that, the, the, the relevance of whether or not it was real or not real was irrelevant to me. The, the relevance was in the storytelling and the larger in life characters that were being portrayed on camera. Uh, you know, and I think today that the business has gone to the place where we've argued, you know, talked about this ad nauseum of, you know, where it doesn't any longer make sense. And it's just, you know, thrown out there and just, well, just accept it as we give it to you. Uh, and I think it does a real detriment to what what the power of storytelling can be. And, you know, I, I watch like, you know, 65 year old Ricky Morton go out and still mesmerize an audience. Uh, and I asked the kids when we're sitting and watching him doing that, I said, like, why would you throw a backflip or 30 kicks in the head or whatever at, at this point? Look at the audience. The audience is already on their feet. They're, they're enjoying it. They're having a rapport. Uh, there's nothing you could do. That's going to take that audience any higher at that point you know, allow them the point to, to enter, to be entertained. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 like you said, there's a whole ton of stuff that went into to, to that pay-per-view and like the, the, the questions that you wanted, wanted to ask, there was the soap opera that was ECW, right? This is, this is like sort of the un, unspoken story that's being told there in spite of all that soap opera ish stuff that was going on in the back uh, or in, in scenes that we didn't see played out in front of us, being on the telephone with, you know, with conference calls with, with pay-per-view companies and uh, turning some of them down at times because they wanted to deliver a certain way that we didn't want to deliver or that Paul didn't want to deliver. Uh, but ultimately getting that night up and off the ground and actually beaming something out from the ECW arena to where fans around the world could now suddenly at their perusal, pay their money and get a, get their own personal window into the ECW arena. Uh, I think was a, a special moment in wrestling, and it certainly was a it was an, uh, a monumental step for ECW. Did you uh, did you actually watch the finished article, uh, the documentary? Yes. Uh, yes. If, you, if you're going to give it two thumbs up or whatever, I mean, I mean, ultimately, did it leave you feel warm about the business? Did it leave you cold? I mean, I know, I know, like there was, there was some sorry characters in there, like Jake the Snake Roberts really comes off right. bad. And it's I know you have to show the good bits, the bad bits, the glitz and the glamour yeah. and the and the highs and the lows. Uh, at this point, Jake uh, in early '97 had just I just I found this out as well. It was just funny. It wasn't funny, I'm sure, at the time. Uh, Jake had been fired from the WWF around like February of '97 uh, because uh, he was a wrestler at the time. I think he was also on the booking committee for uh, renting a car and then promptly just 
disappearing for two days and he missed a shot and then that wasn't the first time it happened either he'd been fired before and then brought right back but this time he was sort of done uh more what i'm asking is uh jake the snake probably at his lowest at that point and having it documented uh docu- documented and, and put on the silver yeah. screen and and uh left there for all time for all to see basically i mean what did you think of that when you were seeing it at the time well you know we're straddling the fence because i see this going on in the dressing room in front of my eyes and uh you know having known what a great talent uh he he was and and can be uh, and then seeing that play out, you know, nobody wants their dirty air lawn or their dirty laundry aired, right? I mean, that's you know stuff you want to keep. But to me, ultimately, it it shows the fans that we are human. You know that they're that we're not ten feet tall, and that yes, we feel pain, uh, and that there are the same struggles that go on in that dressing room that every person out there today listening and watching this program uh, go through and endure in their families. And in that respect, I think there's something therapeutic about it. Uh, for where wrestling was just previous to this experiment called ECW. And then, you know, going through it, I still had come from that, what I consider old school. And I broke into the business and watching those guys just to the, to the last drop of their body, protecting the kayfabe of what, what the industry was. Uh, And then suddenly having this, this door flung open and everybody looking in and seeing stuff. I think ultimately the industry has come to learn to deal with that in some respects. Uh, but I think like with like using Jake as the template, uh, ultimately his getting well, I think started in some ways in, in the airing of that. The longer you can keep that in the shadows, the one thing any addict wants to do is keep it concealed and hidden. And that's why they become such good liars and, and concealers and lock themselves away. And suddenly you don't see your friend anymore. And they used to see every day. Uh, those are the things that addicts want to do because they're ashamed uh, of what's happened and, and they and they don't really know how to, especially in our business with this these larger than life super egos that we wrestlers have. Uh, the last thing you want to show somebody is, hey, I'm human. I you know I, I have an Achilles heel. And yeah, I feel pain um, because that detracts somewhat from inside that business. In a larger sense, today having the luxury of 30 years looking back at that, I think now we can look at it and say, yeah, there's been good and there's been bad from it, but more so than not, when I hear the stories of the younger kids today that they had hopefully by and large learned of my generation's genocide, uh, you know, how many of the guys there that are in graves that still today shouldn't be in graves and, and been there for 25, 25, 30 years. Uh, you know, I think that is the epitaph to it. So like, if, if some good can come from that, then by all means, you know, fling the doors open. That said, I think that now, by opening that door, you've given those people that want to sit down and give their two cents worth on the business and will actually get into arguments with guys about the business. It's, I believe everybody's entitled to their opinion, but excuse me. I think that ultimately, like again, LeBron James trumps Shane Douglas when it comes to the NBA. Uh, Shane Douglas after 40 years is going to trump somebody else out there. Doesn't mean that it delegitimizes their point of view. Excuse me. But if if that person out there says A and the 40-year veteran says B, the the fan watching most likely should fall down on the side of the B because that person's been there and seen it. Uh you know, so again, like with everything, I think there's you know the good and the bad of it, but but in in fling those doors open. I remember watching very beyond the mat the first time and thinking to myself, like, ooh, 
that's showing stuff because that stuff had typically not been shown previously. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's damaged the business. But ultimately, I think that what we see, what what would be my take on what's wrong with the business today, isn't because of documentaries like Beyond the Mat. It's it's more so because you know the, the business has somehow transcended and moved beyond what wrestling's supposed to have been. And you know, everybody always thinks there's a there's a better way to create the wheel. Uh, when you boil it down, it's just the circle, you know, and, and so there's only so many ways to draw that or build that. Uh, we, as we get further and further away from those basal points that were professional wrestling and storytelling, I think it detracts a bit more and more from from each step along the way. They move away from that. The storytelling becomes less pronounced. The, the moves become less uh, impactful because it's just a vomiting up of moves as opposed to putting that move in the right place. There was a spot last night where, and I know we're going to get into the barely legal later, but during the Taz and Sabu match, where he hits Taz hits Sabu with a, one of his suplexes out of no place, and Sabu takes the bump and he stands up and he's run, walk, he's like sort of drunk walking away a few steps before he slumps over to the corner. That looked so believable to me, so real uh, that you know again for as a forty year veteran watching, I'm thinking myself, I catch myself going, okay, I know Sabu's just selling because I you know if he was really hurt he'd be down and not moving. Uh, but my God, it was just like, wow, that's what can be done with the power of storytelling done properly, as opposed to, well, everybody knows it's a work, so it just doesn't matter. Uh, with that being said, I'm skipping out like four more questions here because we've reached our time <laughs> for this first episode. I'll get to a couple of them on our next episode where we actually start talking about the barely legal pay-per-view. But for now, thank yeah. you very much for watching. We'll catch you next week on this podcast. We have still not named uh we'll figure out what the name is soon and we'll yeah, figure, we'll out, figure a, something out we'll figure we, we, yeah, we'll figure out an outro as well i'll do the dutch mantel outro do we the people shane <laughs> there we go all right let's go all right. all right we'll catch you next week have a good one <laughs>